last week we paused at the end of a hard year to acknowledge before the Lord uh, that things are not as they should be. We, we groan, and all of creation groans with us. And it's all the more painful when we realize that we caused it, the worst of it. We saw that in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, when God told Adam that because of his sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that's not the end of the story, which is kind of amazing that we don't have a very, very thin Bible and that we're actually here to read the rest of it. The results of the curse are real and we feel them. And yet, when we look around, we find that there is still good. Some things are as they should be, at least partly. And sometimes we even see that good in great abundance. David sings about that good in Psalm 65, right in the middle of the Bible. It's a celebration of, of things as they should be. It's true for us today that some things, in fact, many things, are in at least a small way, as they should be. There, there is a great deal of good in our world, even now, even after 2020, even going into 2021, even on uh, what is for us in Louisville a cold, cloudy day with not much green around. Even today, we can look around in the world and still find a great deal of abundant good. And... Even as we we have no intention of of sort of throwing aside or marginalizing our acknowledgement that we groan, part of what I want for us this morning, what I want for us with that as our backdrop, what I want for us as we enter a new year is to do that uh, with David to have eyes to see the good that remains, the good that we can even see and feel that good with with the backdrop of the curse and the realization that the curse isn't given full reign now, as we experience both of those things together, that really leads us to a very, very important question. That is, what happened to the curse? How is there anything left to sing about? If we are bad, why do good things happen? How can anything be as it should be when we are not? The first line of Psalm 65 will set us up for its longer answer. The answer, really, summarized, is that somehow the goodness of God is able to overcome our failure to be as we should be. It's able to restore what we have destroyed. 
It's able to restore rebels to the presence of God in a place where we are quieted and fed. Those are really the themes that we see unpacked as God expresses his goodness and as David sings about it in Psalm 65. In verses 1 to 4, God expresses his goodness by drawing, by drawing us to himself. In verses 5 to 8, he expresses his goodness by stilling, stilling creation, stilling people. And then in verses 9 to 13, he expresses his goodness by giving, drawing and stilling and giving. He still does it for us today. And it is worth writing a song about. And so David, inspired by God himself, did. I want to read it now. Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout. And sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise is due to you, O God. That's not kind of an obligatory thank you note. That you write for something that maybe you didn't even ask for in the first place. This is the kind of overflow of receiving goodness from the Lord that creation does automatically. We actually see this same overflow at the end of the second section in verses 5 through 8 and at the end of the psalm in verse 13 when creation itself overflows in celebration of the abundant goodness of God. And for us as really the the, the crown of God's creation, those made in His image, Our joy in God's abundant goodness to us is is not something that we do to pay Him back for what He's done for us. It's something that we do that brings to full circle, that brings to completion, that brings to full experience 
our joy in what God has done for us. Really our joy in knowing his heart toward us in what he has done for us. What has he done for us? Well, uh, we're told in Psalm 65, he draws, he stills, and he gives. And without him, if we don't get him, anything else that we get is meaningless. And so as we see God give to us, we see him first and foremost give himself. As he draws, Adam and Eve experienced, enjoyed the presence of God in the garden. And we know it was that privilege was shattered by sin. <clears throat> so it's right for us to ask the question, how can anybody expect to be near him? Now, how can anybody expect to be heard by him in any kind of favorable way, in any way that would expect an answer? How can anybody come safely into his presence? And yet, it happens. And it's the first thing that David celebrates in this psalm. He hears us. Praise is due to you, O God, in in Zion. That's Jerusalem. This is the place where God has made himself available to people during the time of David. Praise is due to you, O you who hear prayer. To you shall all flesh come. How's that possible? How's it possible for all flesh to come to him to expect to be heard when we're not as we should be? And when coming to him, When knowing Him is a matter of life and death. We don't deserve it and we can't live without it. And so God deals with that problem first. Verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. He does it here. In Zion. In the holy place. He does it in in a way that, that He has arranged for His people. It's a matter of life and death, and so he deals with it through life and death, through giving them a way to sacrifice the life of another in order to receive life from God in his mercy. Uh, that, That giving of death for their life was expressed in a special way on what was called the Day of Atonement. Uh, This happened once a year, and we hear these same themes, these same ideas of life and death, life for those of us who don't deserve it, in the description of this Day of Atonement that happened once a year for the people of Israel, in Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16, God explains that the priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. The author of Hebrews reflects on this picture when When he says that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
But by God's mercy, with the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. And it is something to celebrate. David does, in view of sin being dealt with, he says in Psalm 32:1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, happy, rich, well. Things are well for the one who is forgiven ultimately because of what that forgiveness makes possible. Verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Here in the presence of God, allowed in, allowed to be accepted in His presence, the presence of God made available in the tabernacle as David experienced it, where all their uncleannesses were dealt with and they were welcomed in. Here, we find the one who does all things well. We're satisfied with the holiness of his house, the place where everything is as it should be. Ultimately, because we're satisfied with His own goodness and because we are allowed to experience it. Nearness to God Himself is our chief good. And it's the reason that everything else we experience is good and can be experienced as good. As we'll see in, in the next two sections, God communicates His goodness in in really a countless variety of ways. He, he communicates it to us in ways that we can see. And in ways that we can feel. It's described mainly in this psalm. In terms of stilling and giving. As he draws us near to himself. <clears throat> we experience that in his stilling. In verses 5 to 8. <clears throat> The God who invites us and welcomes us into His presence is the God of limitless power. We always come to Him as creature to creation. We never sort of just strut into His presence as a peer. We always come to the God who is limitless in power as people whose power is totally limited and totally dependent we see that power described in verses 5 and 6. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. This is, this is an overall description of God and what He does with His power. He answers us. He responds to us. And when He does, He does it well. He does it with righteousness. He does it righteously. He uses His power the right way. We'll see what that looks like in verses 7 and 8. But first, we just stop and pay attention to the scope, to the bigness of His power. He, he expresses His power by doing things that would by themselves overpower us. This is the God who is the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by His strength established the mountains 
being girded with might. You might hear people describe um, successfully climbing Mount Everest as conquering the mountain. And you can understand that, that language, but if we're being realistic, we know that that's really not what happened at all. All that they managed to do, and maybe just barely, is to avoid being conquered by the mountain, uh, which happened to a lot of other people, but they certainly didn't conquer it. It is still a, a massive thing that still has the ability to kill them, that they can't move, uh, that they can't, they, they can't undo its power. And God is the one who established these things that can so easily conquer us, that can really put us in our place as we stand at the foot of a mountain or a range of mountains and look up at it and realize just how small we are. And God is the one who established them. So what do we, how do we respond in the face of that kind of power? The kind that, that we, we, we can't even think of overcoming. Well, we might panic. We might run away. Our experience of the way power is used might lead us to do that. <clears throat> we, we have this expression that is borne out by our experience in life that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've seen something like that happen throughout human history over and over again. And that's almost true. That absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's true unless we're actually talking about absolute power. Because we only find real absolute power here where it doesn't corrupt. In fact, it does the opposite. It uncorrupts. It quiets. It brings order. It stills. The God, this is the God who brings quietness to the most chaotic, the most uncontrollable places that we know. Especially to the people of David's time, the place where, where utter chaos ruled would have been the oceans, the seas. We don't control them. When we go out there, they control us. But this is the God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. He keeps nature in all of its hunger and chaos from destroying us completely. Here, hundreds of years after the curse, here's David, here are his people, and they haven't been destroyed by nature. They're still here. And God doesn't only do this stilling with nature. Perhaps even more amazingly, and in a place of even greater chaos, uh, he stills the tumult of the peoples so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. How is it possible that under the curse that we caused, we haven't yet been destroyed by nature or by each other, as a race, as human race. Many people have been destroyed, and yet the human race is still here. We're still here. We still experience many different kinds of flourishing. And how is that possible? How is it that even at the end of 2020, 
when we've faced a worldwide threat, we can speak in any kind of terms of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. That we can say anything hopeful about it. That we're not just saying, well, so this is how it ends. There have been many times when we have, uh, when, when throughout human history, we really have uh, been in a place of asking that question, so is this how it ends? And in each case, the answer actually has been no. This is the God who holds creation on a leash. And when the time is right, he says to it, sit, be still, no further. And it sits, and it's still, and we're still here, and he even stills us. God shows his goodness by quieting the earth under his rule. And as he does, he rescues us, even from ourselves. He does this stilling in a way that doesn't just shut people up, that doesn't just say, you're not in charge, I'm in charge, so be quiet and don't cause any trouble for me. The stilling that he produces for creation and for us results in a party, in a celebration. And that's what we see at the end of verse 8. From one end of the earth to the other, at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day, the sun, at least on days when we can see it, throws a party. Any morning when you get up and you can actually see the sun, you will see an array of amazing colors. Something that says there is a new day and it is a good thing and a gift to us. And at the end of the day, if you're able to see the sunset, you will see a celebration. That God is the one who gave us this day and he gave us abundance in it. You make the going out of the morning and of the evening to shout for joy. The sun itself is, is so often an unrecognized gift to us. As we've gone through a dark year and now we're in a part of a a cloudy winter, I hope that that will give us the kind of perspective that will allow us each morning and each evening as we see the celebration of that gift to have it remind us of the heart of the giver. Whatever that day might bring or has brought, that, that sun, that gift was part of the gift that God gave to his land. We, we, we see that or the reflection of it in verses 9 to 13. God shows his heart by drawing. He shows his heart by stilling. He shows his heart by giving. The, the earth, as David experienced it, as his people experienced it, in the land of Israel was a good place for growing things. Partly. It had some of what was really, really helpful for growing things. It had a lot of sunshine, which you need to grow things. If that's all they get, then all that it does is it bakes the land. It turns it to dust, leaves it dry and hard and incapable of sustaining life 
let alone producing life. You just plow it up and it and it just sits there. You have dry furrows. They're plowed, but they're still hard until God gives. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Here's a soft, gentle, steady, softens the earth and makes it a safe place for seed, a place where its growth can be blessed. I heard a story once. Uh, this was from a speaker who was sort of a, uh, a power of positive thinking kind of guy uh, who wanted to encourage people that, that, that they were capable of, of, of doing things. They just needed to be convinced of their capability, which dangerously only tells part of the story. The story that he told was this. There was, there was a farmer who had a farm, who cultivated a farm, and his farm was successful. And he was visited by his pastor. And his pastor uh, came out and was just looking around and saying, Wow, look, look at this abundant land. Isn't it amazing what God has done in producing all this abundance, all this beauty, all this goodness? And he kept going on and on, and, and the farmer started to get a little bit irritated as, as, uh, the, as the pastor continued to speak of the abundance that God had produced. And finally, the farmer said, well, you should have seen what it looked like when God had it to himself. And there is a grain of truth to that observation, isn't there? It was the end of the story for this power of positive thinking uh, speaker that that really, the place where the abundance comes from is it, is it comes from us. You should have seen what it looked like when God had it, to, had it to himself. That takes a glimmer of truth from Genesis 2 and leaves it by itself. If, if that pastor uh, was thinking straight, probably what he would have said was, yes, that's true, and he never intended to have it to himself. He didn't need it. He intended to share it with you. He put man in the garden to work it and to keep it. But the real miracle is that he didn't let you have it to yourself. If we get it to ourselves, we will plow the dust and before long we'll become a part of it. The land wouldn't feed you, it would eat you. And yet here it doesn't do that. It receives the water. It receives the rain. God blesses our cultivating of the land. And really the watering is not the end of the provision and it can't be. If you've ever planted a crop, then you know that a lot can happen between safe planting and successful harvesting. The crop is subject to, to numberless dangers if God doesn't bless its growth, but He does. Verse 11 and the first part of 12. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. 
that sounds remarkably unlike Genesis 3. And remarkably like Genesis 2. How can that be? How, how can it be that the ground is not angry and stingy and ragged? How is it possible that for us, the land is gentle and abundant, and as we'll see at the end of the psalm, beautifully clothed? There has been, in many places and at many times throughout human history, widespread famine. And yet we know by the very fact that we're still here that at other places on the earth during those times, there has been abundance. People have been abundantly fed and satisfied. And every year for thousands of years, the earth has produced food. And and it's not just tasteless fuel, something that just sort of keeps us going, that allows us to continue to exist. God, in edible form, gives us what's been described as the good and the true and the beautiful. God, out of, out of dirt, makes things that are delicious and things that really are nourishing and that really do give us strength and that really are beautiful. It's not all one color. He gives us food that isn't the color of the dirt, but food that fills really every color of the spectrum. He provides generously and well for people who don't deserve it. And when he does, the earth and its produce really knows how to throw a party. You see the earth beautifully clothed in verses 12 and 13. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. God shows his goodness by enriching the earth for us. Sometimes seeing that blessing is really a matter of perspective. God knows when that blessing needs to be drawn back for a time so that we actually see it instead of just assuming that it's simply the way things are or are supposed to be. And so that when we see it, we see Him. This is the heart of God. Psalm 65 shows us the heart of God that we look to in the coming year. Part of my hope is that 2020, in retrospect, will give us part of that perspective that we need in order to see the abundance when it's provided, to see the goodness and to see the heart of God behind it. Even as we continue to groan because many things are not as they should be. My hope is that all of us, by God's grace, will join creation in wonder that so many things are good, are as they should be, at least partly. Because that points us somewhere else. When we, when we stand in the place, in between, someday, things being as they should be, and and. And at the beginning, because of us, things being broken and not being as they should be, as we stand here and ask, if, if we're bad, why do good things happen? That should tell us that there's, 
that good comes from somewhere that didn't come ultimately from us. It comes from the goodness of God, expressed in the grace of God that does good for rebels, that gives to them, that stills them, that draws them to Him. And someday, He'll finish the work. The very fact that good still exists now for those of us who don't deserve it at all, gives us a piece of the promise that God did not let the story end by telling Adam, to dust you shall return. And he doesn't let that story end for us. All that goodness, all that abundance was purchased on credit. And it had to be paid for, and it was. The picture of bread, the picture of wine, the picture of abundance, points us to the place where all of that was paid for, for us. We're going to celebrate this in just a few minutes. I want to read what Jesus says about the bread and about the wine and how he brings that around to point to himself as the place where all of this was purchased for us. In just a few minutes, uh, Stephanie's going to play. I'm going to give us an opportunity to, to ponder the undeserved, purchased goodness of God for us. And then to celebrate that together as we observe the Lord's Supper. And here's how Jesus uh, deals with it. How Luke describes that in Luke 22, starting in verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, you are good, and you do good. You do the ultimate kind of good that we could not live without and that we did not deserve. You expressed it through centuries, and you purchased it through your Son. So as we, as we enter this new year, would you give us eyes to see your generosity in all of its expressions? I pray that as we see those things, they would... Remind us of your generous giving heart. A heart that ultimately draws us into your presence. And that makes that possible through your son. Would you, by your spirit, reveal him to us this year and even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.